Okay, well, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 17. We're now in the part of Acts where we're following Paul. Is this still doing its thingy? I think it might be. Well, actually, I have no idea. Um, is, it, is it this? Do you want me just to shout? Does it? it sounds all hissy. No? Maybe, maybe that's just my voice. <laughs> maybe, maybe my voice sounds hissy, and for the first time I've heard it, you think, is that actually what I sound like? That's actually horrendous. Um, poor thing. Yeah, it probably is. Probably talked with a lisp all my life, and no one's like to say, you know, and all of a sudden it's just hissing everywhere. All right, so we're now in the part of Acts where we're following Paul on his second missionary journey. He's already been through Thessalonica and Berea and Philippi, as Brennan talked about last week. And as we catch up with him right here, he's about to head in to the great city of Athens. He's actually waiting here for Timothy and Silas. Um, I don't know whether he's going on a little holiday or what, but he's waiting for them so that he can head on to Corinth. And so he stands here in Athens in verse 16. We're going to read from verse 16 through to the end of verse Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move And have our being. And even some of your own prophets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. Poet, sorry. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, 
We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysus, the Arabigide, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Lord, it is glorious to, to worship you in song, to have the words of your faithfulness and your sovereignty burnt into our hearts as we sing. Lord, the word of God has dwelt in us richly as we sang to you today. And Lord, now would these words dwell in us richly as I preach and others listen. Holy Spirit, would you do your work and would you bring these truths alive in our hearts? Would we all leave today changed, having been washed with the word? Lord, you do your work. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are some lessons in our lives that we never forget, aren't there? I remember when I started secondary school, I was so looking forward to secondary school and it, and it you know, it didn't let me down. I remember the first chemistry lesson. I'd never had a chemistry lesson before. In the UK, you don't do any chemistry in primary school. But you arrive at secondary school and you go to this chemistry lab for the first time and all you can see are things that are going to explode. And it was so exciting. And the teacher went to the actual corner of the room where there's just this big glass cabinet in the corner and he, and he put something in a pot and then lit it. And it was one of the most exciting moments of my life. Somebody actually setting fire to something in a classroom. And it just formed this great volcano. And I'll never forget it. I was 11 years old and I just thought, this is amazing. I want to do chemistry for the rest of my life. I changed as I got older. But nonetheless, in that moment, that lesson was burned into my life. A few weeks later, we started PE, physical education. And it wasn't no longer like primary school playing rounders and stuff. We were given javelins. And I just remember thinking, you could kill someone with one of these. It was just, it was taller than me. I was quite a short guy. I was taller than me. And I just thought, this is totally awesome to have something that I can barely lift and throw, but just to get to get to hold one of these and everybody stand back. It was just so much fun. I also remember when I went to pastor's college, when I got older, and just the very first lesson of New Testament Greek. And in the very first lesson, we learned the alphabet. And I remember coming out and thinking, that's it, I know Greek, I can speak New Testament Greek, clearly I, I know the alphabet. And I was just so excited about the whole thing, and, and admittedly as the weeks went on, I realized I know no Greek, um, it's all Greek to me, I don't know what's going on in any shape or form, it didn't make any sense. But at that very first lesson, I just thought, this is genius, I'm probably going to be like a Greek theologian now for the rest of my life. And I was just so excited. There are always lessons in our lives that stand out for us, aren't they? Things that happen that we remember. And there are also some lessons in our life that, that you never want to forget. You hear something and you think, I, I hope I never forget this moment. I hope I never forget this lesson because it, it, it has affected me and it, and it makes a difference in my life. And as Luke pens this letter for Theophilus and indeed us 2,000 years on, he gives us a lesson, I think, right here in Acts chapter 17 that I submit to you, if we are wise we will never want to forget. Because right here, we don't just have a story of a testimony of Paul rocking into Athens and telling people about Jesus and people getting saved. I think what we have right here in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34, is also a wonderful lesson on soul winning. And so if you want a title for today's message, it's a lesson on soul winning. And here's the one thing that I think we're going to get taught by Dr. Luke, 
through the example of Paul in this lesson. You want to know what this text is about in one sentence? Here's the lesson, I think. That whoever the people and whatever the city, the gospel has the power to save. Whoever the people be and whatever the city that you find yourself in, the gospel has the power to save. You see, think with me for a moment as we review Acts to get us back to this point. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus commissions his young church, this little band of brothers that had come together, to start to share the gospel and to indeed take the gospel out. And to take the gospel out to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And in Acts chapter 1 through to Acts chapter 28, that's exactly what happens. The Holy Spirit comes on these men in power and grace And they start to declare the gospel wherever they can. And you see the gospel as you trace the story. You see the gospel move from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the end of the earth. It's such an exhilarating book when you see it's in entirety. But you see, Acts 29, which you're not going to find in your Bibles, is still being written. Because Acts 29 is us. Acts 29 is us having also received the same Holy Spirit. Also brandishing the gospel and taking it out. And that's the responsibility that is on our lives. God has called me and called you to be his witnesses, hasn't he? It's a call on our lives. He says, you know, go and make disciples of all nations. If you're a Christian, great. We'll brandish the gospel. Let's go. Let's, let's go on mission together. Let's tell people about Jesus Christ. And that reality, it isn't hard to grasp, is it? Most Christians will say, yes, I know I'm called to tell people about Jesus. It's not hard to grasp. But it can be hard to actually follow through within our lives, can't it? It can be difficult to actually make it happen. And, and particularly, I think, in our culture, in Sydney. I mean, as I've reviewed different points and acts at different times, I thought, you know what, this is so interesting and exhilarating. But it doesn't seem to relate too well to Sydney. It seems very different from the city and the culture that I'm reaching today. I mean, think about it for a moment. So far in Acts... We've come across the disciples and the apostles sharing the gospel in cities that are predominantly either Jewish or God-fearing. They have a really strong biblical worldview. They have quite a good grasp on the Bible. And so these men are rocking into these cities. They're not Christians, but they already have this idea of monotheism, that there's one God. They already have this idea that you know that there's one person that maybe we're going to give an account to. And so when you hear the disciples and the apostles preaching, they're talking about Moses and Abraham and all these types of things. And, and he's, they're helping them see, you know what, this is, they all pointed to Jesus. You know, they're telling them along a storyline. And that's great. But then I finish the story and I come back to Sydney and you think, I don't seem to have a similar effect. You know, if I rock up to my soccer mates and start talking about Abraham and Moses, they think they must play in the A-League or something. They have no context for, for what on earth is going on. And so it can be hard, I think, at different points to relate, can't it? It can be hard to work out, you know, how do these texts relate to Sydney 2,000 years on? And I don't know about you, but when I tell people about Jesus, I don't often get the same reaction as to what I see previously in Acts. People aren't falling at my feet wanting to worship me often. That's what's happening to these guys. But I think what I love about Acts 17 and what I'm so grateful for about Acts 17 is because in here in these verses, we see the Apostle Paul heading into a culture and a city just like ours. 
We see the Apostle Paul brandishing the gospel and starting it to enter into Athens, which in the way they think and the way they're set up, it's just like home. It's a pagan culture. It's a pluralistic culture. It's not a God-fearing culture. It's just like home for us. See, Athens, just like Sydney, for, by way of background, which we need to understand, otherwise we won't understand the text. Athens, just like Sydney, is a city full of worshippers. See, right at the start of Acts 17, verse 16, it talks about how the city is full of idols. Yeah, that it is. There were 10,000 people actually lived in Athens. 30,000 idols. So when you walk through the streets, there were statues and temples and trinkets. This place was lined. One commentator said it was literally a forest of idols. One historian of the time said in Athens, it is easier to find a god than it is a man. Because when you entered into this city, there were just idols everywhere. Statues pointing us to false gods all the way throughout this city. And the whole premise, the way the city worked is if I can just worship this idol, if I can worship this false god, then they'll bless me. And if they bless me, I'll be able to find my joy and my rest and my satisfaction in the very thing that I'm worshipping as an idol. And so they had idols for everything. They had idols for sex, they had idols for money, idols for work, idols for relationships, idols for fertility. They had idols for absolutely everything. And the premise was, if I worship these things, they will give me what I want and I will find joy and rest and satisfaction in them. That doesn't sound too dissimilar to Sydney to me. For sure, the idols aren't standing on our roads. But people are still bowing down and worshipping to the same things. That if I can just invest my life into work, I can find my value and my worth and my assurance and my joy by doing well in it. If I can just give myself to education, I'll actually be somebody and it will make me feel happy and joy. If I can just be so devoted to my kids, I will live my life through them and find joy and satisfaction and reward in them. We're not that much different to Athens at all. We worship false gods. Our culture worships false gods, thinking that if I can just do this or have that, I will be happy. Athens, just like Sydney, was a city full of worshippers. And Athens, just like Sydney, is a city full of pluralists. See, pluralism, if you're less familiar with it, it's just simply an idea that all religions and all religious beliefs are of equal value. And because they're of equal value and worth, the premise is they're all right. So with pluralism becomes toleration. They're fine with every religion as long as no one's claiming exclusivity. It's because everybody's got to be right. It's just total toleration. In Athens, that is exactly what was, what was happening. Look at verse 21. It says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Why is that? Well, it's because they're pluralists. They just loved it. They found it exciting to hear new ideas, particularly if they could do do the religion, and particularly if then it resulted in building a statue somewhere in the street. They were always excited about these different things. They were pluralists. They wanted to accept everybody. They loved to tell and hear of something new because they loved pluralism. Sydney's just like that. Because in this city, it's built on pluralistic toleration, I believe. You're fine to say you're a Christian. You can go and tell people that you're a Christian. They go, oh, it's great. 
Good night. But if you say to them, I'm a Christian and I think Jesus Christ is the only way, they're massively offended. Who are you to say that? You know, are you putting other religions down then? Because we live in a city that champions toleration far more than it champions truth. Just like the Athenians, they're not built on discernment, they're built on toleration. Sydney's built on toleration, far less discernment. There's this idea that no such thing as ultimate truth. Everybody must be right. All roads lead to whatever you want them to lead to. Sydney, just like Athens, is a city full of pluralists and a city full of worshippers. And so, as I said before, I thank God for Acts 17. And I trust you relate more to it now. Because in all reality, here we have a lesson on soul winning to a city just like ours. Paul is about to enter into a city that is just like Sydney. And when you see that, I think you can not only relate to it and enjoy it, but you can also be incredibly equipped by it. Equipped not only in understanding that whoever the people are and whatever the city, the gospel has the power to save. I think we also get to see an example which Dr. Luke is deliberately showing us of a soul winner. Of what it would look like to win souls in culture. And actually it happens to be a culture just like ours. So three points this morning as we learn about soul winning from Dr. Luke as he shines a light on the Apostle Paul. Number one, the soul winner cares. And this is so important, my friends. If we want to win souls, if we want to win those around us in our communities and in our families, we need to understand that the very basement level here in verse 16 is that the soul winner cares. They're bothered. Read it with me. Verse 16 Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. As he walked into the city and he sees these idols everywhere, what happens to him? It says that his spirit was provoked. I think the NIV says it better. It says he was greatly distressed in spirit. It's not talking about the Holy Spirit there. It's talking about his spirit. He's literally entering into this city and going... I'm grieved for them. They don't know the Lord. Just like Jesus, when you encounter Jesus in Luke 19, he he walks into Jerusalem, having known that Jerusalem is rejecting him, and he starts to weep because he feels for them. And he knows they're lost, and he knows what this is going to mean for them. He, He knows the consequences of their sin and their rejection of him. And it affects him. It's not just a job to be a soul winner for him. He's bothered about it. And Paul's exactly the same as he heads into Athens. He he experiences a great distress of soul for the lost. Why? Because he cares. And so he walks into Athens and he's not like, oh, look at the architecture, isn't it nice? This is a really lovely place. He walks into Athens and all he can see is idols. And he doesn't start tutting at that point about what are these people doing, losers? He's grieved because he's aware in some ways these 30,000 idols, they all point to a people that want to find a God. They want to find a worth. And yet these very same idols scream as to how lost they really are. They just don't know. They've even got this one great monument that just says to an unknown God. And Paul is coming into the city and and effectively weeping as he walks around because he's distressed in his soul because he's aware, I know the God you're looking for. 
you guys are lost and you need him. And I love you and I want to go after you. See, the soul winner, without doubt, cares. And my friends, if you want to win souls, if I want to win souls, we have to understand. We've got to care. We've got to be bothered about the plight of what people are going through, what they are standing for. I have to say, on this point, without doubt, this is one of the things that I am so grateful to God for about my wife. Because ever since I've known Emma, we started to get to know each other when she was 16. And ever since I knew her, I think this is something that she's excelled in, just her care for people. And in her desire to win souls, she cares. I remember the very first time we, we first started going out, and I was working in an insurance company then, and Emma came to meet me from work. And as I was, I was coming down the stairs, which is an incredibly high building, coming down the stairs, and I came out, and I noticed she's crying. And she's holding a McDonald's. And my first thought was, I don't think I've done anything wrong between like coming down. I don't think it's me. I'm not quite sure what the problem is here. And it was very cold. I remember it was very cold. And I come out and I'm like, babe, you know what? What's up? What's, what's, what's the matter? And she just said, oh, I, I, there was this homeless guy that I walked past when I was coming off the train to meet you. And and I really felt I wanted to care for him. So I went into McDonald's and I bought him some stuff and I tried to take it to him. But he had gone and I just couldn't find him. And he upset me. And I just thought, you know what? That's the woman I want to marry. Because that screams of compassion. That screams of care. And I've seen it in my wife over many years, that same compassion, that same care being worked out, not only towards me and towards the church, but to unbelievers. You know, it's not just a proclaiming of the gospel in a cold way, but it's, it's care. It's, I think one of the things my wife does so incredibly well is remembers details that I forget real quick. But she remembers details so that she can ask the unbelievers, how did that go with your mum? And how is your dad? And are they still in hospital? Anything we can do to help you? Anything you need? The sole winner cares. They put some mileage on what they're feeling. They're motivated by love for people and awareness of where they are headed. And then they go after them because they love them. The soul winner always cares. John Rice writes in his book, The Soul Winner's Fire. It's an old book, but one of my favorites. He says, many have the impression that the best man or woman is the best soul winner. That the Christian who has the highest moral standards, pays his debts, avoids worldliness, attends church, tithes, etc., will automatically be the best soul winner. But that is not true. If it were true, then every Pharisee would have been a wonderful soul winner. But they were not. And many a Christian today prays, reads his Bible, attends church, and carefully watches his daily life, yet never for once wins a soul. That is tragic, but true. How often in revivals a good sister or brother rises to testify and says, I want to live such a godly life that sinners will see my daily walk and be saved. The fact is, their living a godly life does not win sinners to Christ. That is not the way God has appointed it to get sinners saved. Living a godly life, listen, is important, vitally important for the one who would be a soul winner. But that first condition of soul winning Divinely appointed is this, I love this, that in love, they get up and go after sinners. I love that. 
You want to win souls? It's not about knowing everything to say. It's not about having some dynamic personality that will just win them to Christ. No, it's quite simply loving people and getting up and going after them. Putting some legs on that care because you're bothered about people. Now, folks, I want to encourage you, if your hearts then are not moved towards the lost, they should be. If we're never affected in our emotions about the plight of sinners, there's something wrong with that, isn't there? And if your heart at this present time is not moved towards a loss, just a couple of thoughts on that for you as I studied this this week. Number one, if your heart is not moved towards the loss, then number one, study the doctrine of God's wrath. I really want to encourage you to do that. Study the doctrine of God's wrath. You know, we, we heard a lot about it over Easter. Two messages I talked about God's wrath as an expression of his holiness, his righteous anger that is poised and pointed towards sinful mankind. And yet I think sometimes we can think of that as some abstract thing rather than a reality to the people that we spend time with. But when you study it, you start to think differently. The same time as you do that, number two, I want to encourage you to study the doctrine of hell. This is something we do far too little. And yet when we slow down in our lives and we study God's wrath and we study hell, the home of eternity that will be for all people that reject Jesus Christ, I think we will see people radically differently. But again, sometimes I think we think of it as abstract. It's just out there. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. if you want to become a Christian, you go to heaven. And if you don't, you go to hell. And it becomes almost like water off a duck's back. But you think, hang on. So you believe that the people that you spend time with in the world and you claim to love are running headlong to hell. Yeah, I suppose I do. Well, well let's think about that then. Let's slow down enough to engage with that. Because they will find that our emotions start to be affected as we think about that. Number three, cry out to God for grace in this area. Study the doctrine of God's wrath. Study the doctrine of hell. But then cry out to God for grace in this area. Hebrews 4 tells us, you know, there is a savior at the right hand of God that we can look to and cry out to. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence to find grace and mercy in our time of need. I think we need him when it comes to soul winning. So let's ask for his help. Lord, would you help me to see my city, Sydney, like you saw Jerusalem and wept? Lord, help me to see my city like Paul saw Athens. Lord, help me to feel for people like you do. We need his help, don't we? We're so tempted to think of this world as home, aren't we? This city dazzles. It is the most beautiful city I've ever lived in. It's amazing. You go down to the opera bar, like when it's sunny, and you just think, if heaven is like this, I'm a happy guy. You know, you just think this is great. It's got this beautiful bridge and this amazing harbor, and the drinks are lovely, and you're just sitting there thinking, this is nice. I've had 35 long years of cold, and now... I want many, many years of hot. You know, it's just, I'm never going to complain about it being too hot. But you're just down there and you just think, this, is, this place is awesome. It's just so beautiful and so picturesque. But the danger of that for each one of us is I think we can be tempted to think of it as home. And we must then actively in our minds strip away the opera house, strip away the bridge, strip away the housing, 
strip away the, the beautiful harbour. Strip away everything that's there. And what have you got left? A people in their hundreds of thousands that are running headlong to hell and lost. Would we have eyes to see them? The soul winner cares. We see that with Paul, but that's not all we see. Number two, the soul winner proclaims. Let's look at verse 17 through 20. It says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoke philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him in the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Paul's heart for the Athenians does not conclude with care. It culminates in proclamation. He doesn't just have a big heart for them and go, you know, I'm just so sad for them. No, that's just the prelude. That's just the motive. That's just the energy to bring about proclamation towards them. Why does he do that? Here's why. Because he knows the gospel has the power to save. He knows it's the dunamis, the dynamite of God, it says there in Romans 1 verse 16. The premise is that if I can share the gospel with people because I care for them and I want them to know that heaven is their home, I don't want them to be cut off from God. I love them. I'm going to share the gospel with them because I've got to, because it's all I've got. I'm never going to argue them in. I'm never going to nice them in, but I'm going to tell them about Christ and him crucified. I'm going to pray for them. Because I love them. So he starts to share the gospel, if you note there, with anyone who will listen. There's the God-fearing Greeks and the Jews in the synagogues. There's the street variety pagans. And there's the intellectual philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And he goes after them with the gospel. He just wants them to know Jesus. And so he starts to proclaim Christ and him crucified to anybody and anywhere that will listen. Motivated by care, he starts to proclaim the gospel. Now, in response, some call him a babbler, quite literally a seed picker. There was this Greek idea that, you know what, there were certain types of people that would just pick up seed and then they would drop it somewhere else. And they didn't really understand what it really meant. But, you know, they'd cut, they start babbling it anyway as if it's their own idea and it's original. And because the Greek thought was so intent on how clever you needed to be, they said, Paul, you know, you're just a babbler. What they're saying to him there is, you know what, I'm not sure even where you got this from. You probably heard it from someone and you've not even probably thought it through. But you're spouting it off and you're just a babbler. You're a seed picker. And yet they were intrigued by what he was saying. Because this was nonetheless a new thought to them. This whole idea of Christ and him crucified, it certainly sounds intriguing. And so they take him to the Areopagus so that he could share his beliefs with the leading philosophers that would meet him there. So the Areopagus, otherwise known as Ayers Hill or in the Roman world Mars Hill, which often we know it more as today, was a large rocky outcrop in the middle of Athens. And it was the home of the Areopagus Council. And the Areopagus Council was just these leading philosophers that would come together and they thought of themselves as like the custodians of all religion and sort of thoughts of the time. And so if you wanted to bring something into Athens that was new, obviously you're going to have to go and see the Areopagus. You're going to see this council. 
And that's what happens to Paul. They take him to the Areopagus. And here's what happens then in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He says, you know what, guys? I know you're religious. I can see it. It's all over your city. But you know what? I couldn't help but notice that there's this one that says to the unknown God. And I want you to know, I do know him. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about the one that you seem to be searching for in your lives. And he tells them then in verses 24 through to the end of verse 31, about the God that he knows. He explains to them how there's one God, one creator, one sustainer, one provider of all. How how there is just one being. There is not multitudes of gods, but there is one God who is the Lord of heaven and earth. And in him we have our life and breath and our being and everything else. He tells them about the judgment to come. That there is an appointed time where we will all stand before that one God and give an account for our lives. And he tells them that in God's amazing grace, though we are sinful, he has sent one in our place. He sent Jesus Christ, God himself incarnate, who lived a perfect life, died and rose again. And he makes it clear that if they will repent, then they'll be saved. If they will just repent from their obsession with idols, they will be saved as they put their faith in Jesus instead. They need to repent from all the different things that they have in their lives, thinking that they're bringing them joy, and instead put their faith in the only God that exists. And through Jesus, they could be saved. See, Paul is working on this clear conviction, that whoever the people and whatever the city The gospel has the power to save. Everywhere he goes, he wants to tell them about Jesus. Now, he changes in nuance in different contexts. So when he's talking to people that have a God-fearing background, he starts to talk to them about Abraham and Moses and the Old Covenant. Well, these guys don't have that, so he starts to quote their own poets. But he doesn't care. His, His point is still the same. But he's saying, you know what, I've heard that you guys say this, and that's really helpful. Let me tell you about Jesus in light of that. It is such skillful work. But the message, in essence, is still the same. He changes the nuances, but the message is still the same. One God, one judgment, one Savior, repentance of faith. He wants them to know there is indeed a way for you. His premise is whatever the people, sorry, whatever the city and whoever the people, the gospel has the power to save. And so whenever he's with anybody, he's sharing them the gospel. My friends, if we want to win souls... We have to do exactly the same. We need to tell people about Jesus. You know, one of the things that when Brenda did the um, really helpful uh, interviews with many of you, and we did the the, um, questionnaire, you know, the amount of people that said, you know, one of the questions was, how confident would you be in sharing the gospel? And many people said, oh, 10 out of 10. You know, how many people have you shared the gospel in the last year? None. That's a clue as to why we are not growing with new believers. Because people don't get saved outside of the gospel. They just don't. People need the gospel. 
we could care and we could have a heart the size of the world, that will never save people. That's the engine room, but it will never save. What we'll save is when we, in boldness and in courage, even when we're nervous about it, say, you know what? I, let me tell you about Jesus. Can I tell you about Jesus? And we find ways of communicating to them about Christ and him crucified. You see, we face so many temptations, don't we? I know I do. And most of this message, as I wrote this this week, I thought, you know, I wish someone else was giving it. I, I do. Because even as I give it, I, I, I sort of keep having out-of-body experiences and think of myself sitting there as one who's listening to exactly the same thing. I, I need this for myself. And there are many temptations that I think face us when it comes to why we often don't share the gospel with people. There's the temptation of the fear of man, isn't there? Am I the only one that has that? Or, you know, we relate, don't we? And you, the opportunity arrives, and you've even been praying with it with your life group, and you're all excited, and the opportunity comes to share the gospel, but for some reason, nothing will come out of your mouth because you're bothered what they'll think. You're bothered what they'll think of you if you. You know, are they going to call you a babbler? And I don't want to be called a babbler. So I, the fear of man is very real and can be very confronting for us and can be paralyzing for us. I think another temptation is busyness, isn't it? Particularly in this city, as we've said before, people live full-on crazy lives. And there could be this premise of, look, I know people are going to hell and I know I need to win them, but right now I'm so busy, but I'm sure it's just a season and I'll get onto it later on the track. But whatever the age, people are in the same season. Everybody's busy. And so we just busy ourselves and don't have time. It's like the Titanic is leaving with unbelievers on and we're just too busy to yell to them or something. The distraction of busyness, the temptation of busyness is so major, I think. Also the temptation of immortality. Not that we think we're immortal or that they're immortal, but we can live as if they are. We try to reach our friends and we, we, we put our name down for a pray and go with an individual and then we realize a year later, I never did share the gospel with them. But, I, you know, well, there's always next year or I'll keep trying. We, we live as if we've got all the time in the world. And yet the psalmist, Psalm 103, says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field and the wind passes over it. And it is gone. And its place knows it no more. You know, I was starkly brought into line with that just a couple of years ago when one of my good friends, Dan Gavetta, died, one of the pastors at Christchurch. You know, he's five years younger than me, goes out to CrossFit, has a brain hemorrhage, dies. And God's kindness, he was a Christian, and I thank God for that. I miss him, but I thank God that heaven is his home and he's gone there. But I can't say that for all my friends. There's a load of people that I play soccer with who I generally have deep affection for. And my assumption is, well, there's always next week, or there's always next week, or there's always next week. Maybe there won't be a next week. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is their last week. Oh, Lord, help me. Help me to get, encourage, share the gospel with them. There is a great temptations we all face. The temptation of the fear of man, the temptation of busyness, the temptation of immortality. Here's the reality. Just turn a few pages over. Turn with me to Romans 10. Keep your finger in Acts because we are going back there. But just look with me at Romans chapter 10. And may we all be sobered by this, I think, in our temptations. 
Romans 10 verse 13, he says for, this is Paul speaking again. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I love that. You know, that should instill with confidence for all of us. As we share the gospel with people, if they will call upon the name of the Lord, then they will be saved. Just fact. It's open to everyone. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And as we share the gospel with people, if they call upon the name of the Lord, then they will be saved. Paul knows it, and that's why he preaches in the way he does. Here's the sobering truth that happens next, verse 14. But how are they to call on him? In whom they have not believed. And how are they to believe in him. Of whom they have never heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching. And how are they to preach unless they are sent. As it is written. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. My friends each and every one of us in this room have been sent. We've been sent to take good news out. We've been called by God and equipped by God to take the message of salvation out, to take the glories of the gospel out. And anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But as he slows his pace, he looks us in our eyes and says, you know what though? How can they call on one in whom they've never heard? His premise is we've got to tell them. We've got to tell them. There are very real temptations of fear of man and busyness and immortality. But my friends, here's the reality. Our friends are on a collision course with God's wrath, which would be a horrific day for them. They are on a collision course with the eternity of hell. And we have a truth that if they choose to accept it, their lives will be changed and exploded out in a moment. All they've got to do is call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. But if we don't tell them, They may have never even heard of him. We've got to tell them. We've got to get over these temptations. We've got to cry out to God for grace and go tell them about Jesus. The soul winner cares. The soul winner proclaims. Here's number three. It's short in closing. The soul winner wins. Look at verse 32. I love this. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Arabigide, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Paul, in care, goes into this city that is steeped with idols and statues to false gods. They are everywhere. So he goes in and he cares for them and that concludes then in proclamation because he knows the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who will believe. And so he shares with them and some mock him. They think he's an idiot. Some will do that to us when we share the gospel. Many are indifferent to him. That's why he says, you know what, and others say, you know what, we, we'll hear you again about this. The way it's written in the Greek isn't just like, oh yeah, we really love to hear it again. The way it's written is, yeah, look, maybe, you know, maybe sometime share it again or something. They're just indifferent. It's like, yeah, it sounds okay for you, not, not probably okay for me. But note this. It says also, though, that some believed. Just a few days earlier, he walked into that city, and in care, he shares the gospel with them, and some believed. 
Some put their faith in Jesus Christ and their entire eternity then changed before Paul's eyes. He cared, he proclaimed, and he won. He cared enough to want to win their hearts. He proclaimed the glories of the gospel. And what happened? Some mocked, some were indifferent, but some believed. Some put their faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. Some of the lost were found. Don't you think Paul would have been rejoicing about this? He walks into a city like Sydney and he cares and he proclaims and he wins. My friends, if we want to be soul winners, I want to encourage you, soul winning, I believe, takes place in exactly the same way today. If we care and we proclaim, by God's grace, we will win some. Some people will be one for him. Some people will mock us. It's just the way it is. Some people will be indifferent. They go, yeah, okay, sounds good, but, you know, not for me. Others will believe. They will put their faith in Jesus Christ, and you will have played a part in winning their souls. So, folks, I want to encourage you then. Whoever the people and whatever the city, the gospel has the power to save. Paul walks into a city just like ours. And he cares and he proclaims and he he wins some. So I want to encourage you, my friends. Would we then be a people who care? Would we be a people who, who generally walk around this city, not just to primarily enjoy it for ourselves, but walk around the city and feel for people and be bothered enough to then just sometimes just walk across the room to engage them? want to befriend them and would we be a people then that in that care that we would be motivated to proclaim to tell them about Jesus knowing that there is no other way the gospel is the power of God into salvation not our niceness or our friendliness even the love of this church and the way we do family together it is awesome it's absolutely incredible but no one's going to get saved because they just think oh yeah nice family it will be a stepping stone and a platform towards that end but it's the gospel that saves And only the gospel. Would we be a people then that care? And would we be a people that proclaim? And here then is my hope. And it is my expectation as biblically defined. Because God is good. I think if we care and we proclaim. In God's kindness we'll also win. Wouldn't it be wonderful. To growingly have a church. Where people are getting saved all the time. Almost weekly, people are coming in and being affected by the gospel, not primarily because they're coming to church, but because we as an army are going to reach in them in a week. And we're telling them about Jesus, and we're proclaiming the gospel. Friends, the gospel is unstoppable. So have confidence in it. God is on the move. So let's play our part. You know, I think it would be appropriate. I do want us to close in song, but I really feel the Lord would have us, I just think, stop and pray now. Not just me praying for you, but I think praying for each other. And so I don't want to embarrass you if you're visiting, and you can play a part of this or you cannot, but I'd love us to get into groups of maybe three, four, five. And let's just spend five minutes. Maybe the band could come up and start preparing to lead us. But let's just pray for each other. Let's pray for our church that God would give us boldness, give us grace and favor, and that we would model this. Amen.